This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. In this episode, rather than focusing on a singular healthcare policy issue, we'll be talking about the American Medical Association as a partner in advocacy. I recently attended my first House of Delegates meeting in Chicago this past June and served as an AAOS alternate delegate. It was an eye-opening experience and, in a lot of ways, changed my perspective on the organization and its alignment with our very own advocacy agenda. Here to talk today about that is Dr. Michael Sook. He's a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who was first elected to the American Medical Association Board of Trustees in 2019. And following his recent successful re-election this summer, he now serves as the board's chair-elect. Throughout his career, Dr. Sook has been a vocal leader on public health issues, including the role and importance of organized medicine, resident work hours, social determinants of health, and numerous other public health concerns. Dr. Sook is professor and chair of the Musculoskeletal Institute and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Geisinger Health System based in Danville, Pennsylvania, and serves as chief physician officer of Geisinger System Services. Prior to being elected to the board, Dr. Sook also served as an AAOS delegate to the American Medical Association House of Delegates. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. Thanks, Adam. Really great to be here. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about how the AMA and the Academy can work together. You and I had some really good conversations, but I'd like to back up a little bit before we get to how the AMA and AAOS could work together. What made you start getting involved in the AMA? It's like many people who are involved at an advocacy level within the AMA. It started for me as a medical student. When you start off as a medical student, you're not really specialized. And for me, finding an outlet for an opportunity where medical students could have a voice and have impact on health policy, the AMA quickly became something that I was interested in and got very active early on in medical school. And since then, I've been not only a member since that time, now over three decades ago, but I've also always felt that the association, the American Medical Association, really transcends any specific specialty interest, but really looks at the larger picture of the medical profession as a whole. And because of that, I've stayed very involved. You were talking about the medical students. And when I was there, there's people, a very large organization, if you've never been to the AMA House of Delegates meetings, it's a lot of people who are coming from every part of medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is the House of Delegates for those who aren't familiar either at their state level or at the national level? Yeah, sure. And Adam, uh, I want to share with you that same experience when I first saw the House of Delegates to see, number one, how large it is and how really how cross-representational it is. And it's really eye-opening, as you remember. The AMA House of Delegates is fundamentally made up of all aspects of the House of Medicine or the medical profession. It has 52 states and territories and their state medical societies that are represented. It also represents all of the specialty societies within the House of Medicine. And to date, there are over 180 specialty societies. And by a certain representational formula, members of the House of Delegates are elected through their representative organization, whether it's a ratio of one to 1,000 physicians in the state, or if it's simply a small organization that wants representation in the House. And so the Academy is one of the larger delegations in the House of Delegates because we have a number of members within the Academy that are also AMA members, and it's important to have that voice heard. 
The other aspects within that add additional dimension to the house are that all of the armed services are also, all of the branches are represented, including the public health service. So the Surgeon General of the United States is actually a credentialed delegate to the AMA House Delegate Club, <laughs> people don't know. And beyond that, there's other specialty societies that include things like the American Board of Medical Specialties, which has a delegate. And it's a little inspiring to see how many representatives are sent across the United States. And then finally, not only do they represent the states and the specialties, but it also represents every stage in the medical practice. And so these are special sections within the AMA, like the medical student section, the residents and fellow section, the young physicians, the academic physicians, the senior physicians, and a number of different groups that uh, are represented through the entire spectrum or the life cycle of being a physician. In that way, I think all of those dimensions give a really good picture of how this mosaic of the medical profession is really put together, representing all viewpoints as best they can. I think a lot of people, when they think of the American Medical Association, think of it as a medical student organization. And what you just outlined really explains how, yes, the medical students do have representation through a variety of means. When I looked out along the audience, I saw people from every single aspect of medicine, just as you said, from the young surgeons and young doctors to the older surgeons and older doctors. It was across the spectrum. Would you agree that while the medical students are a part of it, they are definitely not the majority within the House of Delegates? Oh, not by stretch. The majority, there really isn't a single group that represents the majority within the AMA. And I think that is part of the democratic process, which is really so well protected in the way things are done. So you were talking about specialty societies, and I just want to make sure we're clear for those that are listening. The AAOS actually has multiple specialty societies of orthopedic surgeons that are also sending delegates. So the AAOS sends delegates, but other specialty societies that comprise orthopedic surgeons are there as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we had a brief conversation about this. By my last count, there are some 22 specialties represented in our BOS of which only a smaller number are actually represented in the AMA House. And for me, I think that's an opportunity for us because we not only are represented within the academy, but as an orthopedic trauma surgeon, I'm working on trying to see if I can get the Orthopedic Trauma Association to also send a delegate. And if you think about it, with 22 subspecialties or organizations within the larger academy house, you can imagine the power of that voice when it gets amplified in a body like the AMA. So the more people who are members of their specialty society and also a member of the AMA or members of the AAOS and also a member of the AMA, the more delegates we get for those subspecialties and for the AAOS, and ultimately the more votes we have to help dictate the policies that the AMA puts out or endorses or supports as we go out to DC or as we speak with regulatory agencies. Is that right? That's exactly right, Adam. And I think that's the key component to trying to understand this bridge between our specialty and a larger canopy organization is this idea that our voices can be amplified in order to help influence the policy of a large or well-respected organization. And rather than shy away from the opportunity, because we may or may not agree with everything, our chances to get others to agree are dependent on our ability to have that voice within that house of medicine. 
So talk a little bit about how the American Medical Association decides what they're going to advocate for. What are they going to discuss when they are meeting with regulatory agencies? How does that process work from the House of Delegates and from AMA members to ultimately leading to policies that the AMA adopts? The best way to think about the American Medical Association is really similar to our former federal government. So we have a, a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. The executive branch is essentially the AMA Board of Trustees, and their job is to execute on policies and also maintain the fiduciary duty between meetings. The legislative branch is really the House of Delegates, which meets twice a year in two meetings, the annual and the interim meeting, where 1,600 delegates and alternates from around the country gather together and bring forth either ideas or commentary around policies that the AMA should endorse. And this comes in the form of a bill or what we call a resolution. And these resolutions are brought forth in a very democratic, extraordinarily parliamentarian process whereby any individual can bring forth a resolution and be heard on the House floor in order to help influence or change policy. Those policies are then put between the meetings, are then brought to the board in order to find avenues in which we can advocate. One great example of this would be, as you remember in June, many delegates put forth a, a cry and a demand and a concern that we needed to put Medicare reform as our top priority for the AMA. It's not that it wasn't a priority, but they demanded that we are really finding ourselves in a bad crisis as physicians across America. After that was passed, it now becomes part of the board's process to execute on that policy knowing that we have a broad swath of other policy that helps support the substantive nature of Medicare reform. And then part of our Washington office, very similar to what we do in the cameras, we work very closely together to find the right vehicle by which we can advocate. And one perfect example of this is the current bill in Congress is H.R. 2474, right? Which is essentially a bill that says that we need to be able to tie the future increases of Medicare payment to the Medicare Economic Index, which is basically saying that Medicare payments should follow the cost of increase in practicing medicine. And it's absolutely bizarre to me how we don't have a system that actually recognizes the fact that the cost of practicing goes up and that payments should follow. And this is exactly the type of thing that the Academy and the AMA can advocate together, two of the most powerful lobbies in Washington, D.C. And just to close the loop, the judicial branch is really represented by our Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs. And as you know, it was the father or the creator of our code of ethics in the United States, which is really a model for the globe. And so that judicial function is actually really important and sets the ethics for our profession. And so that's how I would think about the AMA is really modeled after our former federal government with a real part of its mission to make sure that voices are heard and are democratically discussed to the point where any individual, any citizen of the AMA can come forth and change a policy. So what I thought was really interesting along those lines is that these policies that have gone through the process you just described were summed up in this concept of the recovery plan for America's physicians. And this hashtag of fighting for docs is their kind of Twitter hashtag and it was really amazing to me because I think a lot of people think about the American Medical Association and they think back to maybe some policies that they may not have agreed with back in the day. But I looked at this AMA recovery plan and I thought you could take the AMA away and put the AAOS over the top of it. And it's the exact same things we're fighting for. 
Can you talk a little bit about this recovery plan for America's physicians? Sure. Thanks, Adam. And it's a great opportunity to discuss, again, its role is trying to make sure it represents all physicians. And as you pointed out, there are many issues that are uniform no matter what specialty you're in. If you have an MD or a DO after your name and you're practicing medicine today, you feel elements of all of this. And so the recovery plan was really something that was devised post-COVID. Recognizing that COVID upended everything for almost every walk of life in the practice of medicine. And coming out of COVID, we also recognized, number one, that physicians were really at the front end of dealing not only with the economic pressures, but the clinical pressures and the burnout. And so five identified points were critical to be talking about to make sure that the public understood that physicians were continuing to carry a big burden even post-COVID. There are five points to the plan. The first is to fix Medicare. And that's related to the things we just talked about, including things like supporting bills where we tie things to the Medicare Economic Index, bringing awareness to the fact that Medicare, the recent fee schedule has come out and we're all taking a total collective cut of three and a half percent. And I know the Academy is doing a tremendous amount to advocate for this. We also know that there's been a payment freeze that's going to set to expire in 2026 that will ultimately still result in a reduction in the amount we get paid. And so recognizing something's coming in 2026, we've got to start planning for that now. So fix Medicare is number one. Number two is this issue of prior authorization. Our colleagues in other specialties face exactly what we do when we talk about indicating somebody for a total knee or a total joint or doing something and spending all this time in our offices making sure an insurance company says it's okay because we need to check the certain boxes in order to do surgery totally taking away physician judgment. We want to fix prior authorization by working with our insurance companies. And our success has been tremendous in that regard And that you've seen that United Healthcare has eliminated for some 25% of its conditions now, the need for prior authorization, certain medications and things like that. Third on the list is this really critical issue of scope of practice. In Ortho, we have significant issues with sort of scope of practice. And regardless of how you feel about it, there is an overlap between the world of podiatry and the world of orthopedics and the world of foot and ankle. That's just one example. There are advanced practitioners like physician assistants who now call themselves physician's associates and are asking for independent practice. Or in the world of anesthesia, CRNAs who are looking for independent, non-supervised ability to practice anesthesia. And all we're doing is pointing out the significant educational differences between the professions and asking and bringing light to patients, what would you want for your mother? Do you want the expert and the ones who are best associated with the ability to deliver care in those positions? And really calling out what are some of the arguments that support this, the idea that advanced practitioners and nurse practitioners, if they could just be an independent practice, they would go to all of these rural areas and we'd never have these underserved counties. Well, we know study after study shows advanced practitioners and nurse practitioners are the same as doctors. We like to live in the cities and we like to live in these areas. And that just doesn't solve that problem. So that's the third aspect of the recovery plan. Number four is this absolutely critical issue of burnout, physician burnout. I think if we had to give credit to any organization, I would give credit to the AMA for really bringing this to light. This idea of physician suicide, there's been an academic, there's been an epidemic of physician suicide, and the pressures that are related to both our EMR and also the undue pressures of economics and trying to survive and practice and really being fulfilled. And we, like the Academy, were strong supporters of the Laura Breen Act, which passed Congress, which really brought to light this idea of mental health struggles that physicians can have. We fight every day for the idea that when you apply for a license, you shouldn't have a mental health screening so that we don't force into the shadows people who are seeking help. 
And these are really important things, not just for ortho, but also across the board. And then finally, the fifth element of the recovery plan is really supporting and during the pandemic was really new. It has a lot less to do with us specifically as a profession, but this idea that we transform the way medical practice is today by allowing and permitting telehealth to become a prominent way that we practice medicine. It's exposed our ability to provide more access. I look forward to a technological future where ortho can do more telehealth. I've always been saying it's very hard for us to do physical exam by video. And so as a result, our uptake is perhaps less than some of our colleagues in psychiatry and others. But there's technology coming. And when you see a patient by telehealth, you should be paid the same amount as if you saw them in person. And so these are the things that we continue to raise as part of the recovery plan, which I think will help all and lift all boats and continue to bring awareness. I think most specialties have agreed that it's a pretty good plan, at least identifying. And it's continuing evolution as we get past to the next level. But in a nutshell, it's a long way of saying, but that's the five pillars of our recovery plan at this point. What's great is I look at our tier one issues within the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. I see Medicare and payment reform. I see prior authorization reform. I see reduced physician burden. I see improved telemedicine policies. All the things that we just talked about. And then Obviously, we've got a handful of other issues that may be more specific to surgeons, such as eliminating the repeal on physician-owned hospitals, which honestly, our current president of the AMA is one of the authors on several articles around the value of physician-owned hospitals. And finally, medical liability reform, which we know that the AMA has always been a leader on the medical liability reform front. And what I see is tremendous overlap between the two organizations as far as what we are both trying to get done. Yeah, I agree, Adam. And I think the issue of physician-owned hospitals is really critical and it's ripe now because more evidence is coming out that we actually save money, that these are better quality care and they're actually more economically efficient for a lot of reasons. Things that I think the rank and file ortho have known forever. If anybody who works in a general hospital like I do at a trauma center know that you can be more efficient in a physician-owned hospital. With regard to that, if there are elements of the AMA policy that are not co-aligned with what we believe in the academy, this is our discussion, which leads to the fact that we can change it. It's the strength of our ability to make those advocacy changes. Rather than run away because we don't like it, we get into the fight and we should change it to the way we like it. I think that's the beauty of this conversation, Adam, is to bring light to the fact that there are so many more similarities than there are differences. And where there are differences, we should be able to talk it out. That's right. I spent most of my first 10 years in practice being a skeptic of what the AMA was and whether it truly supported someone like me as an orthopedic surgeon who was starting into practice only to find out it absolutely supported everything I believe in and want to see accomplished from an advocacy standpoint. I think you touched on a little bit, but what would you tell an orthopedic surgeon like myself who didn't have an opportunity to go sit down and listen to the discussion at the House of Delegates in Chicago this past summer, someone who maybe hasn't been around the AMA and hasn't seen what they do, what would you tell them if they're unsure of joining the AMA or they're not certain whether it's worth their time and money to become a member? Yeah, I would say that, number one, there's always opportunity to join and to participate, whether it's through your specialty and or your state. And if you have the inkling, as many of us do, the inkling to be involved in advocacy, let's find a way for you to get involved. But amplifying your voice through any aspect of the House of Medicine today is really a good thing. And I think that when you look at the larger picture of influence in Washington, of the top three, 
not only political action committees, but voices in D.C., you and I are very lucky in that we belong to the two of the top three. And so when you think about it that way, I really am optimistic about an ability for orthopedics and the orthopedics agenda to become part of the national dialogue. And I just say it's part of a professional obligation to be an advocate. If you're in practice, you are in advocacy. I think you've said that. I've said that. And I think that as many ways as we can to tackle the big issues, we're only going to find success when we get together to do it. And even within the American Medical Association, there are caucuses or coalitions that have formed over time of people with similar interests. Maybe talk a little bit about the Mobility Caucus that you were instrumental in starting and founding and where that is from a, in a very short period of time from an influential position within the AMA. Thanks, Adam, for recognizing that. So within the association, there is just a natural tendency to create caucuses, just like we do in Congress to find groups that are of similar interest. And what has happened over many, many decades is the fact that a lot of the geographic societies, the geographic associations have tended to create geographic coalitions. So you have things like the PacWest, or you've got California and Colorado and all the Western states coalescing around geographic ideas. When I started the Mobility Caucus, it was along a similar line, but we wanted to bring together those specialty societies, not states, but specialty societies that would have a common theme or tie. So we're very closely aligned with the neurosurgeons, as you can imagine. We're very closely aligned with the physical medicine and rehab, even rheumatology on things that have to do with the musculoskeletal system. And then what I found very quickly is that a number of different organizations may only have one delegate because they're so small, but they have an interest. For example, there's an organization that exists for workman's comp injuries. Now, imagine being the single delegate of 1,600 and trying to get things done. We welcome them into the Mobility Caucus. And in doing so, we now have one of the largest caucuses, larger than even California as a state, that get together on similar issues around musculoskeletal interest. And I'm happy to say that our orthopedic associations are a big part of that. And in coalitions like this, it just continues to amplify what we want to do. I mean, it's tough to get it started, but it's now in their sixth consecutive year, and it's a power to reckon with. I think you have summarized so well how we can take our message and continue to amplify that message beyond the four walls of the AAOS and continue to have others can speak our language and advocate for our issues. And I really appreciate your time in creating the knowledge that needs to be out there about what the AMA is, what it stands for, and how orthopedic surgeons in the AMA really see eye to eye on so many things. I sincerely hope that many of our members of the Academy choose to become members of the AMA, and I encourage all of them to strongly consider it and or email someone who's currently a delegate for the AAOS to discuss their involvement and understand better what we do. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate your efforts and your continued work within the AMA to ensure that orthopedic surgeons have a voice. Adam, thanks so much for this opportunity. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in a couple months at the next house meeting. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.